During this Advent season, we have been looking at what is a normative paradigm of Christian growth. Not always does it happen, but often in just this way, as it happened in the coming of Christ to Bethlehem and Judea so long ago. Christian growth often begins with a disruption, something unexpected. And although they had reason to look for the Savior and the Messiah, very few were really ready. Only Anna and Simeon are mentioned as those very few, among the very few who were actively looking for the coming of Christ. And his coming, of course, disrupted Herod as a new rival and Jerusalem, and it caused a heavenly uh, activity as well as a tremendous upheaval in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, the wise men. Everyone's moved by and disrupted by this event. Then we saw last week that the second stage that took place in just about every case that's been mentioned is a period of consideration, a period of meditation, a period of thinking about these things. What could it mean? Joseph hears the annunciation of the angel and he formulates a plan because he's thinking about it. How can I respond to this disruption, this unexpected thing? And Mary treasures these things up in her heart. And so it is that the wise men talk it over when they see what's going on and they say, we need to go home another way. And so the second step is that of meditation and consideration. What could these things mean? We don't always know. In fact, to this day, the coming of Christ is something of a mystery. As he came born of a virgin, out of heaven and down to earth, how magical and wonderful this is. Mysterious, difficult to grasp, impossible to completely comprehend. We come now today to the third step in this paradigm, and it is the step of worship. Last week we said, too, that uh, this whole process is something like the forming of a pearl in God's creation. We noted that in the formation of a natural pearl, there is some kind of a disruption in uh, irritation inside the oyster. The oyster then begins to act and react to it, and what results over time is a beautiful natural pearl. More beautiful than anything we have been able to fashion even down to today. Pearl necklaces cost far more than synthetic and are more beautiful. So the understanding and the big picture is that God is doing something glorious here. Really terrific and wonderful. But it begins with irritation and disruption. It begins with, it begins with a challenge almost always. But if you've come with me to this point and And in in personal matters in your own life, we must get ultimately to this third step. Which, of course, Joseph and Mary and the Magi and the shepherds get to. It is the step of worship. One of the passages that we have looked at often in this this, uh, month is is, uh, Isaiah chapter 9. And after speaking of the disruptions that this one who comes would bring, that the people in walking, who had been walking in darkness would, would receive, he pauses in verse 7, or verse 6, excuse me, and says, For to us a child is born, and to us 
a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let us bow together. How wonderful is the story, O Lord. How beautiful is our Savior. How, how marvelous is our redemption and forgiveness of sins. But we acknowledge that His coming was not a welcome one. Many young boys died. Many homes were disrupted, torn apart by an inexplicable assassination, looking for the king. And you, were, and you were warned us that you didn't come to bring peace but a sword in this world. And sometimes in our lives, the challenges you bring are most unwelcome. But it is your hand and it is your work, and we promise, we, we thank you for your promise that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is our hope and that is our encouragement. For the, Lord, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Postal Service says that tomorrow is the busiest day of the year for packages and letters in the United States of America. So that means we're in the middle of it, right? Right in the midst of whatever we call the Christmas rush. And whatever that means for you. I want you this morning for the next few minutes just to loosen your neck and your shoulders and Take a deep breath, relax a bit, and rejoice with me over the beauty of the description of our Savior. In other words, let's worship together. I don't know how you define worship. Many times when people talk about worship, they're talking about the singing and the flow of the congregational song and, and uh, voices. Others like the quiet moments of meditation or times of prayer. It's not often that the sermon becomes what people consider to be it's sort of the worship service and the sermon. But let's make the sermon an act of worship too. Let's just reach back and ponder this matchless description, not just beautiful in word, but true of our Savior. And I've given you in the sermon outline beginning on pages 10 and 11, some of the words that I want to say. And by, uh, by opening, let us ponder again, what child is this? Who is this child of whom the prophets speak and at whose birth heaven and earth rejoice? Words indeed are inadequate to say who this child is. I ga Isaiah gives us some strange word pictures. We're going to look at those in a moment. Every title comes from the unsearchable depths of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity itself. And taken together, they attempt to encompass a single name, Jesus. His name doesn't appear as such in this passage, but we know who they're talking about. It's clear that this is the Messiah who was to come and now who has come and in whom we can rejoice. And then I quote Bonhoeffer in the next paragraph, which is also on the cover of your bulletin. 
Can we not forget all of our stress and struggles, our sense of importance, and for once worship the child, as did the shepherds and the wise men from the east, bowing before the divine child in the, danger, in the manger like children? That's what we're due. That's why we're here today. And that's what we depart on now. Isaiah says he's a wonderful counselor. It's not the last time he's going to say it. We just read earlier this morning from Isaiah at chapter 11. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Everything about Jesus is wonderful, and especially his wisdom. He is wise beyond our understanding. He has fashioned the heavens and the earth. And we are gathered here today because he has providentially and beautifully managed our lives and worked in and through us to bring us to this point. I have printed a few words. In him, the wonder of all wonders has taken place. He is indeed without peer. The incarnation comes out of the eternal counsel of God. It was his plan. It was his idea. Mysterious and beautiful it is. God became man. The Word became flesh. That is the wonder of God's love for us and the marvelous counsel of God which wins and delivers us. Anyone who recognizes Jesus as the Son of God and whose every word and deed is a wonder will find in him the profoundest and most helpful counsel in all times of troubling and questioning. Everything he does is wonderful, but his counsel... His guidance, his wisdom is mentioned first. Surely we can marvel at that. The unfolding of the story through the centuries, the way that he sent his only son, the costliness of of this gem from heaven, the beauty of his life, which attracts us even now to his words, and causes us to bow before him and the personal counsel he has given us. For he is our counselor. Through his word we have come to learn true wisdom, wisdom that the world considers to be foolishness. The world does not know what he's doing. The world's wisdom has failed. Had we time, we could look to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, where Paul illustrates and says, He is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's considered to be foolishness by the world and sometimes also by us. We don't understand and we don't like what he's doing. But he is wise beyond all measure. He is a wonderful counselor. And when we call upon him through his word and in prayer, we find by his spirit terrific assistance. It's a struggle. It's a wrestle. There are times when we doubt and fear. But he uses all of that together for our good. To build us up. To strengthen us. To mature us. That's his plan and purpose. He's wonderful in all his ways. But Isaiah says he's especially wonderful in his counsel and his wisdom. The world says everything has a natural cause. The gospel says that without God's intervention, we have no hope. The world says, let's make a grand plan for world peace. The gospel says, 
I will bring peace by being born in a manger. The world says learning and education will solve all problems. His wisdom says that only he can change lives. And so we find ourselves, who will we listen to? We are surrounded by the voices of our contemporary culture and our friends and family, but then we hear this stronger voice, this wiser voice, this more full and capable voice from our counselor and our friend. Isaiah moves on to describe him as a mighty God. Not just the gentle counselor, not just the one who listens and speaks softly into our lives, but also the child in the manger is none other than God himself. Nothing greater could be said. God becomes a child. Here dwells God Almighty. He is poor, wretched, helpless, our brother, insignificant, vulnerable, and yet he is God. Almighty God. His pitiable condition in the manger is also his power. By love, he overcomes the chasm between God and man, overcoming sin and death. Let us kneel before him and let him be your God and your power. You know what that word mighty means. It's the Hebrew word gabor. It means hero, champion, knight in shining armor, the one who faces overwhelming odds and saves the towns and saves the people and saves his people and gives his life. What kings and statesmen and philosophers and artists and religious leaders and moral teachers have labored for in vain is now brought about in this newborn child. I want fame, and so we labor for it. No one is more famous than Jesus on this day. World over, he is the single most well-known personages who ever lived and live still. We want power. No one has been able to begin to replicate the creation, the redemption, the providence of God. He is in, don't miss it, in this little child, he is mighty God. There's something very deeply woven into his universe which says, Weakness is strength. Service is power. Kindness is greatness. And we see it in him. Mighty God, not just in the advancing of armies and not just in the, in the, in the way that he could still the storm and the waves and the wind, but a mighty God who advances in your heart. If we're honest, we say, Lord, The biggest barrier that I've ever seen is my own stubborn heart. The most difficult thing for me to wrestle with, to subdue, to turn to good purposes, is my own will and willfulness. But you have proven your power by coming into my life and subduing me, changing my opinion of you, And giving me new life. Only a mighty God can do this. Others may be able to still the storm. And feed the 5,000. But no one else has been able to penetrate my heart. Not for more than just a moment. And you have. This is real power. This is real significance and change. And we worship him for it. Yes, he's a mighty God who made the heavens and the earth, and we rejoice in that. 
And he has all of history in his hands, moving toward a planned consummation in the future. But along the way, he stopped and he stooped, not just for Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, but for me. He came and he touched me with his mighty power. Also, we learn he is our everlasting father. How can this be the name of this child? How can, the, how can he be called father? Only if the everlasting fatherly love of God is revealed in this child, and that this child will do nothing other than bring the love of the father to the earth. In this way, the father and the son, as Jesus said, are one. And he who sees the Son sees the Father. This child will do nothing on his own. He is not a wonder child, a wonderkind in the child in the human sense, but an obedient child to his heavenly Father. Everything he does is as a result of his own counsel with the rest of the Trinity, and he never varies from it. So if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. There'll be no surprises in heaven in having to get adjusted to a new personality in the Father that is unlike the Son. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. There is no difference. Excuse me, there's ontological difference, but no real identity in terms of personality. At the time of his birth, he brought eternity to earth. If we go to the manger and seek the everlasting Father who has now also become our saving father, we find one who isn't just a second-class God, but he's the mighty God. This is God himself. He brings you into an intimate relationship. He is this knight in shining armor, and he's also your father, Abba, Father. He brings you into an intimate relationship with him. And so we have nothing to fear. Sometimes there rises within us this wonder, well, the Son loves me, but what about the Father? What will happen to me if I fall into His hands? Here and elsewhere, the Bible says, when you fall into the hands of Christ, you fall into the hands of the Father. There was but just one brief moment when they were separated in all eternity, past and future. And that was for the sake of our redemption. So we live today under the shadow of Christ's coming. Not some dreaded disasters or some fate, but the coming of the God of justice, of love, and of peace. Not finding our own way into the future to God, but receiving the future from God, because he has the future in his hands. We know that we cannot go to God, but he comes to us, enfolding us in his unbelievable grace. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This sounds more familiar. This is what the angels speak of. Where God comes to people in grace to join them, peace is established between God and humans and also among ourselves, person to person. If you're afraid of the wrath of God, go to the child in the manger and let him give you the peace of God. If you are in strife and hatred with your neighbor, come and see how God, out of his great love, has dealt with your neighbors and will reconcile you both as you come before him. In this world, power rules. 
This child is the Prince of Peace, the potentate of power. Where is he? Where he is, peace rules. Of course, we've learned that it's the Hebrew word shalom that's used here, which means full, economic, spiritual, physical flourishing. It means Jesus is not just here to get you a wonderful and personal relationship with him and deal with your problems on the inside, but he's also here to eventually create a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and justice. That is here, he is here to make a difference, to get rid of poverty, to get rid of injustice, to get rid of violence, to get rid of war. He is here to bring peace and justice and to get rid of disease and death, and one day that will happen. In the meantime, he rules over his people by his word and spirit, granting us inner peace, consolation, and mercy. But this isn't a temporary thing. It stretches into the future. Of the increase of his government and peace, we learn, there is no end. The government of this poor child will be great. Where is Alexander? Napoleon, anyone you can name from history, they're gone. Their kingdoms are broken. But this king and his government will encompass the whole earth and one day for all time. His rule will be a rule over the hearts of all of his people. Thrones and kingdoms will be strengthened or broken by his power. The unseen loving rule of this divine child will be more firmly grounded than the visible might of earthly lords. Despite all the hostility against it, this government will become greater and greater and more firmly based. With the birth of Jesus, the great kingdom of peace has broken in. He will not establish his government of peace by force, but only when people submit to him and allow him to rule over them. Then he gives them his wonderful peace. War and discord are the fault of those who will not allow Jesus to rule over them. But it doesn't matter. Because his kingdom is inexorably moving toward full and complete manifestation. And we will see him and his majesty and his glory face to face. And so we worship. We know that we're on the winning side. We know that he will take care of all things and all opposition into the future. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be a rising, rising and increasing and increasing glory. And our our voices and our hearts will be moved ever more into the future by his rule. Not yet, but it's coming. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom with justice and righteousness. Where is this throne of kingdom? Not just in heaven. It is also present there with his word and sacrament, ruling and governing in the church and among his worshipers. In his kingdom, Jesus rules with justice and righteousness and does not leave unscathed the congregation of believers. Indeed, precisely on them, he executes his strongest judgment. And those who are really his people do not seek to avoid it, but bow before the challenges he brings. Jesus can only give a new righteousness once he has judged the sin. His kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness, but that cannot be established by us judging ourselves. It must be divine judgment of our sin. 
we can find this kingdom if in the church we accept the word and, and let it rule over us, allowing him to give us new life. And so from the throne of David comes this righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. This will happen, my friends, because he wants it to happen. This is his plan. There's no uncertainty about it. There's no contingencies here. It will happen because of his zeal. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. His zeal for this advancement of peace and his kingdom, the righteousness without end through the kingdom of God, will remain forever. It will, in the end, bring down all human guilt and all resistance. Whether we are there or not, at that time alive on the earth, it will arrive one day. God lays his plans and teaches his, and reaches his objectives with us or without us. But he wants us to be with him, not by compulsion, but willingly. This is what we say at the manger in Bethlehem. Our words are confirmed by a glance at the story of the divine child. We try to grasp in phrases what is contained for us in his name, Jesus. And we've considered some of the descriptions that the prophets have given us of what he is and what he will do. Basically, the words are no more than the unspoken silence of a worshiper in the face of the inexpressible reaction to the presence of God in the form of a human child. So let these truths wash over you. Let them thrill your heart. Let them calm your fears. Let them clarify your thinking. This is the way it will be. And it will be accomplished and established in just this way because God himself will do it. And then we will see how mighty he is. Then we will see how gracious and peaceful he can be in, in, the, in the depth of the peace that he brings. Then we can see the knowledge and righteousness of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Then we can know true wisdom and be led by the one who is our mighty God. I hope these few moments together this morning have thrilled your heart, have refocused your thinking, have edified your spirit. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you came as you promised. You suffered as was predicted. And all of heaven and earth could not stop your redemption for us. You accomplished it. And we thank you. And we thank you for these few moments together this morning to reflect on the word pictures of Isaiah. For you truly are a wonderful counselor and your wisdom is beyond measure. You are the mighty God who has subdued even our hearts. 
You are the everlasting Father, for you and the Father are one, and when we've seen you, we've seen the Father. You are the Prince of Peace. In the increase of your government, there will be no end, and your zeal will accomplish it. Thank you that we are in your hands. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, for you are truly worthy of it. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.